And it's long been understood um, that um, it is the job of any generation to take that which they've been given, improve upon it where and when they can, and then pass it on uh, in a better form uh, to the next generation. This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu hc. Welcome to the Howenstein Center's new online program, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Williams Whitney. During the stay-at-home orders, we may not be able to journey far beyond our homes, but that should not stop us from journeying far beyond our minds. Today's journey takes us across wide terrain as we consider the novel coronavirus pandemic from a more philosophical perspective. Our guide is Professor Jeffrey Paulette. Jeff grew up in an immigrant household in an immigrant town called Holland, Michigan. He was trained in German philosophy at the Catholic University of America, and after 20 years of academic wandering, ended up back in his hometown. He's in Holland, where he's a political philosopher who teaches at Hope College, writes much about America, and listens to Bach. My conversation with Jeff will go about 40 minutes, 50 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers. Feel free to begin sending your questions to us right away using your Zoom toolbar to do so. Jeff, thank you for joining me. Uh, Glaze, I'm happy to be here. And that it's is a to Bach on the uh, wall behind me there. Well, that's great. We brought George Washington and Bach to the party. Yeah, yeah. Can hardly well, let's, start, <laughs> let's start by talking about what you love to teach. Tell us a little about your favorite courses and what you try to get across to students. Well, uh, I, I teach uh, political theory and I teach the intro to American government class. And then we have other little gen ed classes uh, that we have uh, now and then. Um, I love the political theory classes, of course. That's my uh, background. And um, I uh, very much enjoy teaching American political thought and ancient medieval political thought. Um, and that's uh, for me, a really fun one to teach because it's forcing them to enter a different world in a certain sense, uh, a different, uh, what Charles Taylor calls a social imaginary. Uh, and and uh, one of the great benefits of that is it gets them to, to rethink things that they think are obvious or the sort of platitudes that they might uh, normally operate by. Um, and it's a really lively, uh, you know, because they bump up against things that are intriguing, um, upsetting. Uh, you know, I mean, you're a historian, so you're familiar with the problem of presentism uh, very much, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of a nice antidote um, to that. Um, American government, I've been teaching, so I've been teaching for close to 30 years, um, and American government was always the course that sort of bedeviled me, uh, you know. I'm sorry, my, my dog just walked in. This is, it was only a matter. It was only a matter of time before we had the dog problem, right? <laughs> um, uh, hey, I love dogs. Your dog's welcome <laughs> on my show. Okay. So that was a course that always kind of, uh, as I said, bedeviled me in terms of exactly how to go about teaching it. And um, it was maybe about eight, nine years ago, I was teaching a class and it was the end of the semester. And a student said, um, uh, well, there's a new edition of the textbook coming out. And when 
not allowed to sell our textbooks back to the bookstore. And I thought, okay, well, you know, what textbook cost? You know, and it was probably actually more than that. It was probably a dozen years ago. And it turned out the textbooks were 120 bucks. You know, I had no idea. And I, I thought, well, this is absurd. Uh, because A, I don't like textbooks that much to begin with anyway. Uh, and if I don't like teaching out of them that much, they probably don't like reading them. And at 120 bucks, this is crazy. So what I took to doing was uh, putting together um, just a series of essays and articles and um, you know, they begin by reading Orwell's Politics in the English Language, and that kind of sets a tone for the whole class. You know, we have to think about how we think and think about the words that we use and think about the concepts that we use. Um, and if we're going to do politics properly, it's not going to be just, you know, throwing around slogans or jargon or something like that. Uh, we read the Federalist Papers, we read Anti-Federalist Papers. We read all kinds of essays about contemporary politics. We read classic essays on the presidency and on Congress and things like that. And it's just made that class uh, much more enjoyable for the students, much more affordable for the students, uh, and a lot more enjoyable for me to teach. Um, so I think they, I, I get students now walking out of there saying, well, this is nothing like what I expected it to be. But, um, you know, the idea is that I think 20, 30, 40 years from now, what they learned is still going to be relevant, right? Because they're understanding basic concepts, structures, institutions, what the animating ideas and principles are, uh, rather than just like talking about current events or something. That's terrific. I mean, to start with Orwell like that and to really emphasize the importance of sound thinking and the responsible use of language. That's a great way to start, set the tone for your course. Now you just listed a number of great books, excellent essays. If there were one book that you'd have students and indeed all Americans, have, have all of them read, what would it be? Um, you know, I, I mean, my, my favorite book about America is Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, what, uh, 190 years old now. Uh, but it's not dated. Um, the, the, I think the analysis holds up incredibly well. It's, it's you know, it's a bit of a demand. Uh, you know, it's 700 pages or, or so. Uh, but it's, you know, all the chapters are really short. And uh, so it's kind of one of these things where you can just read a little at a time. Uh, you can kind of bounce around between chapters. Uh, it, it's it's a, a, a book uh, that has um, an extraordinary whole to it, um, but also the, the parts kind of hold up independently. Um, so I, I think that's a, uh, just a, 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 a great book. And, um, you know, then, then I, I think there are sort of the, the, the kind of great American novels, you know, that sort of help you understand, you know, Gatsby, or I, I love the work of Walker Percy. Um, you know, I, think, I think he's getting at something authentically American. One of my favorite novels um, that I think it gets at something really authentically American is Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men. Uh, I just think that's a brilliant novel um, and, it, and it captures some of the essential elements of America um, in really profound ways. How do you use Gatsby in political theory? I don't use, I've never taught Gatsby in class. Okay. Um, I have taught uh, Penn Warren in class, and it's a, you know, that's a bit dicey, um, you know, because uh, it, it it has the forbidden word in it uh, on, on numerous occasions, and so, 
you know, you have to kind of do a disclaimer at, at the beginning. Um, uh, but I, I do like to teach literature in, in my classes because it's, uh, again, it's an imaginative sort of world. I mean, one of my, uh, there, there's a great line in um, All the King's Men, quick background. Uh, uh, Jack Burden, who's a historian, is in love with uh, Anne Stanton, and she's trying to convince him to uh, get her brother to accept a political appointment because she can't do it, no one can do it uh, because he doesn't want to get corrupted. And uh, he says, well, I can do it. And she goes, well, how are you going to get him to change his mind on this? And Burden says, I'm going to change the picture he has in his head. And uh, I, I, I kind of think that's sort of what politics is in a certain sense, is the pictures that we have in our heads. And uh, we, we tend to follow policies that we believe will fill out those pictures, uh, right? We'll, we'll, we'll bring in the detail and, uh, and make them concrete and so forth. Um, and, and so what, you know, part of what you have to uh, do, I think, when you're teaching politics is help students understand what their own pictures are. Um, and, and to see what the pictures are that they have in their heads that they're operating with. Because a lot of times they operate unconsciously, right? We're, we're not actually aware of that. So that, that's the brilliance of, of, of that scene. The brilliance of that scene is that he knows that Adam Stanton has a picture in his head of political life as being uncorrupted, right? And that you can keep yourself clean uh, by just not participating in the dirtiness of political life. Um, and and uh, what Jack wants to do is change that picture, and, and, and he changes it to, there's no way to stay clean. Um, so you might as well get dirty. Now, what do you think the picture is in most of your students? What are they thinking in their heads? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and and uh, um, yeah, I, I say this without cynicism. Um, I think that they have um, a, a picture in their heads of political life that are both contradictory and complementary at the same time. Um, and that is they want to do good, right? They, they very much want to do good. Um, and they want to do good in a way that, that sort of like Adam Stanton is kind of uncorrupted. They don't want to get their hands dirty. Um, and, and so they have a kind of vision of political life uh, whereby um, you, can go, you can do good things um, without uh, any kind of moral compromises or moral costs. At the same time, when they think about our actual politics and the way our politics actually works, they think it's corrupt and mean and base and ignoble. Um, and so they, they feel uh, I believe this this deep tension uh, between um, wanting to do good and knowing that there's a kind of political calling that will enable them to accomplish some of the good they want to accomplish and fearing they're going to get corrupted and tainted by it somehow. Um, and and so um, I think a, a part of the challenge is helping them navigate that and, and helping them um, think through that. And part of that is helping them understand uh, what politics is. So, uh, 
interrupt me if I'm if I'm rambling too much. No, this is really interesting. Yeah, but but I, I one of my uh, sort of intellectual heroes is is Max Weber, and um, so in, in in a couple of my political theory classes, I'll have them read uh, Weber's essay, "Politics as a Vocation," and uh, Weber has a great metaphor in there, where he says uh, politics is a slow, difficult drilling through hard boards. You know, and you have to kind of imagine, right, it's the early 1900s, and it's one of these little hand drills, you know, with a crank on it, you know, and you've got a piece of oak or something, and you're sitting there and you're trying to, and it goes, well, that's what kind of what, that's, that's what politics is, you know. It's not easy solutions. It's not, um, you know, simple. Um, it, it, it's, it's difficult. It's arduous. Um, you're going to get blisters. You're going to get sore. And a big part of his essay is dealing with um, the fact that whatever else is true of modern politics, um, there is always at its core the use of force. And um, so there's no way you can get comfortable with politics unless you can somehow come to some sort of moral acceptance of the use of force. And of course, at the center of force is violence. Um, and you've got to make your peace with that somehow. Um, and so again, this is a kind of, I, I think, a way of, of thinking about politics um, uh, and thinking about the world and the role of politics in the world um, that gives an accounting of the role of force in human affairs and when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate and to what ends can it be rightly employed and uh, what are the improper ends and uh, what are the proper means that you can employ and which are improper means. Um, so that, that uh, but, but part of that also then is getting into conversations about, well, is it ever appropriate to become comfortable with use of force? Or maybe is that something like an Anabaptist kind of stand, right? Or maybe that's something that we should be avoiding altogether, uh, which opens up all kinds of interesting moral questions. <coughs> Fascinating. I mean, this is a baptism by fire for these students. It sounds as if it's uh, really very challenging to them, and this is what you would expect from a teacher of your caliber. Well, has your experience in the classroom made you more optimistic or pessimistic about what our country's going to look like on the other side of this pandemic? Uh, <coughs> yeah. As he coughs. Your host yeah, there, there's, so there, there's uh, <coughs> two you? parts to that, right? There's the kind of short-term uh, thing and, and the long-term thing. Um, one of the things I tell my students, especially in my American government class, is, um, right, uh, right, I mean, the idea of tradition is literally, uh, etymologically means to hand over, to hand down. Um, and so what any um, uh, generation of people uh, have to do is pass on an inheritance to the next generation. There's no way to avoid that, right? That's baked into the nature of things. You're passing on an inheritance to the next generation. And, um, you know, so what are the things that we have in our inheritance? Well, you could say there are things such as um, the, 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 the physical world around us, um, uh, the intellectual world, right? The civilization that has been bequeathed to us, uh, arts and letters and, and so forth. The, um, um, the institutions uh, that have been handed down to us, uh, you know, the financial world, the banking world. I mean, all this is part, 
finances, right? I mean, that's all part of our inheritance. And it's long been understood um, that um, it is the job of any generation to take that which they've been given, improve upon it where and when they can, and then pass it on uh, in a better form uh, to the next generation. It's a natural instinct we have as, a, as parents, right? I mean, we wanna take whatever we've been given, make it better, and then pass it on to our children. Um, what you should not be doing is spending down your inheritance. Uh, right? You need to increase the wealth. Uh, you know, it's the parable of the talents in the scripture. Uh, you need to, need to add to that. It's, it's what, uh, you know, Edmund Burke called, you know, the great contract, you know, that's, that's binding all the generations together. I think my generation um, um, has not done a good job of that. I think we've spent down our inheritance in a lot of ways. So you kind of look at the world uh, around us and you say, okay, so what, what have we inherited that we've made better? Um, I, don't think the I don't think we've made the financial world better. I think we've made that more tenuous. Um, I don't think we've made the, the, the physical world better. Um, you know, I think there are all kinds of serious uh, environmental and conservational uh, problems that we've created. Um, I don't think we've made our institutions better or stronger, uh, right? I mean, our, our political institutions, I, I think, are, are weak, they're fragile, um, they're teetering um, at, at times uh, at the point of collapse. Um, um, our churches are, are not stronger. The family, right, the bedrock institution of social life is not in better shape now than it was 50, 60 years ago. Um, uh, um, the inheritance of arts and letters, I don't see how we've improved upon that. I mean, in, in some ways, we've abandoned altogether the idea of passing this on uh, to, to our progeny. Um, and, and so I've, I've said this to my students, you know, in a lot of ways, um, my, my generation has made a mess of things, right? And that's what we're passing on to you is a kind of giant mess. And um, the thing is, you've got no choice. You're going to have to engage it. You're going to have to deal with it. And this is going to require a kind of resilience and resourcefulness uh, that maybe we haven't done a good job of developing in you. Um, but you need to start cultivating that within yourself. And I'm here to help you cultivate that within yourself. Um, and, and I think my students, they get it. Uh, and um, they look at, at, even before this pandemic, I think they kind of surveyed our political institutions, our financial institutions, our social institutions, and they thought, oh, this doesn't look good. Um, and, uh, um, right, they get it. They need to be resilient. They need to be resourceful. Uh, they need to, again, sort of rethink the ways um, they're going uh, about things. Um, and Jeff, so let me ask you. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a basic question. So we were raised by a generation that had gone through a lot of privation. They'd been toughened up by the Great Depression and then World War II. And then all of a sudden dawning on human consciousness, the possibilities of nuclear annihilation, they had to bullet through, you know, they didn't have the luxury of being coddled. Mm -hmm. What happened? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we got those lessons from our parents. Why weren't we more successful? Our generation in raising these younger people. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, in, in some ways, um, you can look at that and say, well, that was sort of a hard world. Um, you know, I, I look at my parents' world and I think that was a hard world. My parents are immigrants. Um, you know, they grew up in uh, the Netherlands uh, during the Second World War, during the Great Depression. So they knew privation, right? They, they, they knew genuine hardship. And um, I think they, part of it was they did something parents are naturally going to do, and that is try to protect their own children from privation and hardship. And privation and hardship create resourcefulness. They create resilience. Uh, uh, you know, so if you're protected from those things, you, you, you tend um, to lose some of those things. So that's, that's one thing. Um, a second thing I, I think is um, uh, affluence, right? Um, there, there is a kind of corruption of affluence that can take place. Um, you know, most uh, uh, political thinkers from Plato and Aristotle on through the American founding. Uh, you know, if you read um, the people who are writing around the time of the American founding, there were certain things they feared, but one of the things they feared a lot was luxury. That's right. Right? <laughs> um, and that, uh, right, too much abundance, too much luxury would soften people. It would corrode the morals of the community. Um, it, it would erode, erode resourcefulness and self-sufficiency and independence and so forth. Um, so they really feared uh, the, the kind of corrupting influences of luxury. Um, I, mean, uh, I mean, you and I know each other, we kind of know something about each other's backgrounds. Uh, um, you know, so without you know, saying too much about that, uh, I, I think that a lot of our political leaders um, did not grow up in um, knowing privation, right? Um, and uh, so that I think there is this sort of corruption um, that kind of takes place. Um, and then at the level of kind of elite leadership, I, I, I do think that you have the, um, uh, what's the, 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 the well-known book, Tenured Radicals, right? You have this sort of problem of tenured radicals, right? So the people who were the sort of campus radicals in the 60s and so forth end up becoming the, the college leaders of the next generation. What do they do, right? They jettison um, the sorts of things that um, can create a sort of steely resolve within people. Um, so for example, like I mentioned ancient medieval political thought. One of the things that really hits my students uh, when I have them read it, I have them read Lucretius, uh, uh, Natura. that's one of the books they have to read, but then they also have to read Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. And, um, you know, when they start reading the Stoics, it's kind of like, huh, but this is really interesting. Yeah, right? And it speaks to them um, in a really powerful way. Um, you know, so it, it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's a combination of things. Um, and uh, if you live anywhere, and, and I think this is kind of um, a big part of maybe the conversation today, if you live in a world that you think is going to be constantly getting better, right? Um, I mean, it, it, I, I think that um, one of the problems in our politics is that we think we have solved 
the two main problems of political economy. Right? The main problem of political life is disputation. Um, is, would you please repeat that? Is it, the main problem of political life is disputation. Disputation. Yeah, we disagree about things. And um, uh, so, uh, uh, um, th there is a, a kind of thinking in um, contemporary elite classes um, that, you can, th that you can solve the problem of disagreement through expertise, right? Um, right, through science, or right, however you categorize it. Right? This can solve the problem of disagreement. Um, you know, the, the kind of fetishization of facts, for example, in contemporary discourse, uh, that's interesting to me. Um, the, and, and the problem of, of economic life has always been scarcity. And uh, the idea of progress, uh, which has become the kind of unifying American idea, um, is the idea that uh, you can kind of get beyond both problems of disputation and problems of uh, scarcity. And um, I think that is an idea that our generation kind of grew up with. And you know, there, there's always outliers, right? There's always skeptics of these kinds of things. Right? Christopher Lash or uh, uh, you know, or Roger Scruton or right. I mean, you're always going to have skeptics of, of, of this sort of stuff, Russell Kirk. Um, <laughs> Um, but they're also, uh, uh, you know, it is the, the imaginary, right? I mean, it's the predominant way of thinking about the world and explaining the world. And I'm not sure our current generation of students believe in that anymore. Right? They, 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 the, the idea of progress doesn't have the same kind of purchase with them um, that it did with us. And um, frankly, I think that opens them up. Um, to kind of different ways of thinking and different ways of being um, than a, a world where people uh, believe that if you just keep applying human intelligence to all these problems, you're just going to make the world better and better and better and better uh, without end. Well, there have been three big shocks to all of us uh, from the time our students were just, you know, being born or becoming aware of their world. I mean, we've had 9-11, we had the Great Recession, we have this novel coronavirus pandemic, uh, the shocks to our, our way of life. It makes sort of the easy materialism that we had come to expect uh, suspect. And I, I agree with you. I think our students are challenging that. And, and it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to process this coming on the other side of the, the pandemic. Um, have you been in touch with your students? Are you getting any initial oh, rumblings of, of how they're pulling all this stress together? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's kind of funny because uh, I, I have uh, a, a group of students. Uh, I have this little book club that I run on campus. I call it the Tocqueville Forum. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we meet uh, regularly and read whatever, discuss it, and have dinner and so forth. Well, we couldn't do that after the campus shut down. So we would do it online. And um, I had them reading a couple of unusual books um, and, and unusual essays. 
Uh, one week we read a couple of short stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne. One was his short story, The Celestial Railroad, and the other was his short story, Earth's Holocaust. Um, and, and they're classic Hawthorne. They're really wonderful stories. I recommend them to listeners. Celestial Railroad, Earth's Holocaust by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, and one of the things that Hawthorne was, was a really profound uh, uh, um, critic of the idea of progress. Right? Um, uh, because in, 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 in both stories, right, they're, they're, they're uh, the people, the, the main antagonists in the stories, or protagonists, I should say, are, um, are, are, are kind of utopian dreamers. Um, and what he kind of does is he shows the costs of these utopian dreams, like what they have to do to accomplish this, and ultimately the impossibility of ever accomplishing these dreams. Um, and those stories both really resonated with the students. They were, uh, uh, yeah, they, get, they really got into them. Um, and then we, we read um, a really short book by um, uh, the Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper uh, called um, um, Only the Leisure? Book. Pieper. Yes, uh, no, no, it wasn't Leisure. No, it wasn't Leisure. Okay. It was a smaller book yet than Leisure. Yeah, that's a great book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Um, no, it's a small book he wrote called uh, Only the Lover Sings. <laughs> it's a wonderful little book. Uh, yeah, but it, it was a, a, a kind of book about what really matters in life. Like when you when you start stripping away a lot of the accoutrements and a lot of the material stuff, and they're like, what really matters in life? What 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 do we really see in the world about us? They loved that book um, uh, because I think that's the stuff. Um, they they are hungry for meaning. And um, they're, they're hungry for things um, that are going to give them meaning and they feel it to their bones that material abundance is not going to do that. That's not the answer to the questions that they're asking. And um, so in, in, in a certain sense, I think uh, that there's a, a salutary effect to diminishing expectations. You know, I mean, the American dream is the dream of constantly rising expectations. Right. Uh, but I think, I think there's something to, the, uh, to be said for diminishing expectations. Um, so I, I tell you, when I spend time with my students, I'm hopeful about the future. I'm not necessarily optimistic about the future, but I'm hopeful about it. Uh, I, I feel the same way. Yeah. I, these students, they, they really, I, you encapsulated them so well. They do want to do good. They do want to make the world a better place. And I so enjoy their energy, their enthusiasm, uh, the seriousness with which they tackle their studies so that they can come out with that degree and, and be ready to work and start making change. I know the, the students we have in our Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy are real inspiration. I, yeah. I, I think sometimes they, they suffer you know, from imposter syndrome and the burden. They don't think that they rise to the challenge yet, but in time, they're going to blossom and they will be really a credit to us, I think, some of our better students, certainly. Yeah, you rise to the challenge by rising to the challenge, right? I mean, yeah, it's, that's it's, right. What it's, it's what it's thrown at, yeah. You know, when, when people complain about the youth, you know, and oh, millennials this or Gen Z that or something like that, I always say, you know what, you come and spend a week with me 
with, with the kids that I have the privilege to teach. I mean, I, I, I just think they're remarkable young people. And, and some of them are so far ahead of where I was when I was their oh. age. <laughs> oh, I know. Totally. Yeah. Well, well, this leads to an interesting question, Jeff. You know, we, we talked before this, this particular uh, webcast about some of the ideas we wanted to go through, but this, this comes right at it, what you're saying. It, we're training our students to be part of the elite and to take their place in society as, as people who can deal with bureaucracies and all the things that we sometimes find irritating. But is, is this pandemic leading political philosophers, political scientists to reevaluate the role of elites and bureaucrats? Yeah, I think that's been going on for a while. Um, I, I believe uh, Lash's book, I mentioned Christopher Lash earlier, I believe his book, The Revolt of Elites, was, of the Elites, was published in 91. And um, I was actually going to review that book in, in kind of preparation for this, but it's back in my office. I'm not allowed in my office at school right now. Uh, 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 but it's a really prescient book. Uh, and um, the fact that it was written in 91, I think is really interesting. Um, 1989, as you recall, uh, is the year of the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And uh, it is the year of the publication of Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. And, um, you know, so th this idea of the end of history has kind of a long um, patrimony, you know, going back to German idealism in the 19th century and so forth. Uh, Marx, right, in the Communist Manifesto says, uh, you know, communism understands itself to be the history, the, the, the riddle of history solved, right? And it knows itself to be such, right? So in other words, the kind of struggle, the dynamism that drives the historical process, um, once solved in thought, um, then in practice, it just becomes a kind of matter of, of, of detail, right, of, of, of bureaucratic management and so forth. So, so again, there's a whole, I won't bore uh, listeners with a kind of whole uh, school of thought on this. Um, uh, but the idea is that essentially you, you've resolved the conflict that drives history forward. And what you get in, in the American context uh, with this idea that we have reached the end of history is that um, the problems of social life are now basically problems of bureaucratic management and expertise. Right? Um, and so you have to generate a kind of class of experts uh, who are properly trained in the methods and the ideas of the sciences, both natural and social. Um, and that these people are largely uh, the term that they would use, uh, what was one of the, one of the terms I saw, um, um, empathetic, non-self-interested decision makers, right? So in other words, right, there's this idea that we have entered a world of politics um, that is now um, uh, uh, dominated by these disinterested selves. In other words, they're not motivated by self-interest, they're not motivated by party interests, um, they just kind of know the right way to do things because they've been properly trained and they've kind of gone through uh, all the proper training regiments, uh, right? So it's the development of the new meritocracy, um, all right? These are the people whose job it is to rule. 
Um, and, and so what that means in part is that you're not doing politics as normal anymore. And this is one of the reasons why we're now in a post-congressional age, uh, because Congress is politics of contest, right? Uh, politics, Congress is the politics of disagreement, negotiation, compromise, uh, log rolling, like all the kinds of stuff uh, you know, that, that, that people don't like. Um, bureaucratic politics is disinterested politics. Right? We are experts. We have managed all the data and, all, so, and so forth. Um, and we are the ones who have the privilege of rule um, and should exercise the privilege of rule. Um, and so what we've had emerge in, in uh, our society is this, uh, I think post, uh, again, Lash was on this, right at the end of history moment, right? Um, but this division of American life into the elites um, and into the non-elites. Um, and we saw their serious separation. I mean, at one point, there was a kind of confluence of these people in the Democratic Party, um, but the Democratic Party pretty much kicked out um, the, the, the sort of working class from uh, part of its coalition. Um, and what you were left with were the coastal elites um, who were running things. Um, what we, any time in American history or in uh, Western history that I know of, where you get a kind of um, elite ruling class that sees itself as both separated from uh, the working class um, and as superior to the working class with no noblesse oblige uh, that obligates it toward the working class. Um, what you have are the seeds of revolution, and uh, you're, you're going to have uh, this resentment building up um, in the political system that's going to uh, emerge in populist revolts. Um, and the thing that typically is going to trigger it is some kind of corruption in the banking system, right? It happened during the presidency of Andrew Jackson, happened during the happened back in the Hamilton, you know, the Pacific Silvidius debates, you know. Uh, uh, you know, the Hamilton-Jefferson debates in, in the early part of the uh, Republic, Jacksonian era, during the McKinley area, William Jennings Bryan, the Cross of Gold speech and so forth. And I, right, you get these populist revolts. Um, and it happened in 2008. I mean, it, it was, uh, right, you could, you could see it the, 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 uh, simmering uh, in the wake of 2008 when there was massive corruption in the banking system. Uh, where the uh, bulk of the um, problem fell upon the working classes, a kind of hollowing out of the middle class that takes place. The working classes absorb the brunt of this, um, and the elites walk away from this, who are largely responsible for it, walk away from this scot-free. Um, like there's no way that's not going to generate resentment uh, in the political system. This creates all kinds of problems of social trust. Uh, this these tensions between the classes. What is solidarity in such an environment? And, and maybe this gets a little bit into the, the meaning of 2016 and the election of Donald Trump. You know, this is a sea change, it seems to me, in American politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I read uh, the Trump election in 2016 as, as a lot of people did, as a kind of populist revolt. Uh, but it was a populist revolt um, generated by the failure of the elites. Uh, in our in our country, um, and that failure 
uh, manifests itself at a, at a couple of different levels, uh, one of which is their social, social isolation. Uh, but the other is a kind of political indifference, right? Um, compare, for example, um, you and I briefly uh, talked about this idea, uh, you know, the difference between an epidemic and a, and a pandemic. Uh, you know, a, a pandemic is a sort of situation where everybody feels vulnerable. Um, an epidemic is a situation where only some people um, seem vulnerable. And then you get uh, an interesting kind of um, situation where, um, you know, how connected do some groups who are not suffering from it feel to groups who are suffering from it? So take the AIDS epidemic, for example, in the 1980s. I um, mean, what you saw uh, was a great deal of indifference among um, a lot of conservatives, uh, among a lot of religious people, right? Because why? Because it was a gay disease. Uh, and so they could just kind of hold that at arm's length and say, look, it's not going to affect me. I'm not gay. I'm not an intravenous drug user. Um, um, and, and so it's kind of their problem and not my problem. Um, the opioid epidemic, right? Uh, I mean, since the um, financial collapse, we've had half a million people die in this country of opioid abuse. Um, and what has happened? Um, Right. If this were, if, if the opioid, so, in, and I think uh, I, I looked at a number this morning. In 2017, we had 50,000 people in this country die of opioid abuse, but they weren't dying in Manhattan. Right? If that had been happening in Manhattan, there would have been uh, a media outcry and a decisive political response to it but it was happening in the northern woods of Michigan and in the uh, gutted out um, rust belt towns of Southern Ohio or something like that. Um, and so the, the, the elites could kind of look at the opioid epidemic and say, eh, eh, it doesn't look good, but it's not something that we're going to do anything about really because it's not affecting us. And um, uh, the thing about a pandemic like this is um, that everybody is in a certain sense equally vulnerable, right? Any of us can get it. Um, and none of us are uh, know in advance uh, what the effects are going to be if we do get it. But we don't all take equal risks in response to it, right? Um, uh, honestly, other than uh, I, I can't go to my, my, my uh, favorite bars in Holland, that sounds bad. I shouldn't say it that way. My favorite restaurants or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I don't like teaching online, but I could do it. And uh, I don't like meeting with my students online. Uh, I like sitting with them in my office or going to have a cup of coffee with them or stuff like that. But I could do it. Um, I kept getting my paychecks. Uh, I kept doing my job. I kept busy. I kept doing things. Uh, why? Because I'm a, I'm a, a white-collar, upper-class knowledge worker. Right? Um, I'm not a service worker and I'm not a producer. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a manufacturer. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not, uh, you know, Lash talks about this um, in both um, um, the revolt of the elites, but also his book, The True and Only Heaven, right? This, this kind of division of American life into the elites and the non-elites and one of the things about the non-elites is they're small-scale proprietors. 
All right. So they're a small business owner. They're craftspeople. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're very hands-on uh, kind of people. And people like that are going to respond differently to something like this than are people who are not those things, right? They're knowledge workers. Um, they can just as easily work online as not online. Um, and, and so what has happened uh, with this pandemic, it, at first I kind of thought, okay, maybe there's a kind of new social solidarity um, that's going to emerge from that, but that hasn't happened at all. Mm. Um, and it hasn't happened because the, the costs and the risks have not fallen equally upon different groups. Um, and the people who are making the policies and are making the decisions um, are not people who have had um, their, their imaginations and their view of the world shaped by a physical engagement uh, with the world, by taking risks, um, uh, by um, understanding um, that there are limits, right? And this is one of the things Lash talks about in his book, is that, is that uh, the populists understand that life has limits because you're always bumping up against them, right? And the people who believe in progress don't believe in limits. Well, you, you've raised so many good questions. Uh, you were talking about the opioid epidemic and, you know, a lot of this comes out of collapsing economies. You know, we've seen it here in the Midwest. These go back to policies that have been decades in the making. Some people would bring, uh, blame NAFTA, for example, transferring our wealth out of this country to other countries. China has been recently discussed quite a bit with regard to that. So as our economy moves forward, as you look at the debates over our economy now, what do you see happening? I mean, we've got consumerism, presumably, that's going to continue. Um, we've been a great manufacturing nation in the past. Uh, we outsource a lot of it now. What do you think is going to happen? And uh, tell me if you think the pandemic is going to make things better, net better for the American economy, because we've learned some lessons, or net worse? Wow, that's a lot there, uh, which I'd expect. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, uh, the consumerism uh, element uh, because this really has become um, the bedrock of economic activity. When the stimulus package um, was was put together, um, and it's an interesting thing, like where's two trillion dollars coming from, or where's three trillion dollars coming from? The Atlantic uh, had a story yesterday that. Um, Yep, we can avoid a, a Great Depression, um, and it's only going to take $10 trillion. So huh. <laughs> money well spent, right? Uh, uh, we have, uh, and, and this is, uh, again, to go back to Lash, Lash mm -hmm. argues that this is part of the idea of, of um, uh, the sort of modern um, elite economy. It's, it's a consumer-based economy. It's not a production-based economy. Um, and uh, one of the reasons for that is because um, elites can take advantage of the financialization of economic activity, um, right? They know how to engage in trading, they can do arbitrage, uh, they can, uh, right, they'll invest in, in markets. So Aristotle in, in the politics book, one of the politics, he makes a really important distinction between what he calls economics, properly speaking, which is productive 
household economics, right? Where you're producing things, making things, building things, growing things, um, you know, the things necessary to live. And what he calls uh, crematistics, uh, which is speculative economics. Um, and the idea is that you're not producing wealth. Um, you're creating um, I, I, I kind of artificial wealth. Right? In other words, you're not actually uh, contributing to the common wheel in any way. What you're doing is you're kind of wagering and betting on the economic activities of others. Paper wealth. It's paper wealth, yeah. And, and, right, and, and, and the whole thing in 2008, that's what it was all about, right? The credit default swaps and the CDOs and all this, right? I mean, this is just all speculative uh, paper wealth. And, uh, right, so a healthy economy is a productive economy. It's where people are making things, they're growing things, they're building things, they're doing things. Um, an unhealthy economy is one that's based upon financialization, right, on paper on arbitrage, uh, on uh, speculation and so forth. And that's the kind of economy that we have, right? Manufacturing is now less than 15% of all economic activity. Agriculture is less than 2% of all economic activity. And uh, financial activity is roughly half of uh, economic activity. Uh, after the Dodd-Frank bill was passed by Congress as a way of trying to control the whole big, too big to fail phenomenon, the six largest banks became actually bigger. Uh, they controlled more of um, capital investment assets now than they did prior to the 2008 collapse. Um, and so what keeps the whole thing going is consumption. Um, and what keeps that consumption going is um, large has largely become uh, cheap goods from China. And uh, so the stimulus packages that were passed were not uh, uh, packaged, or the, 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 the CARES Act was not designed to improve production. Uh, one of the things that we've seen happen um, as a result of, of the pandemic are, are breakdowns in the food supply chain utterly predictable. I mean, we, uh, Wendell Berry has talked about this for years, right? The problems in our food supply chain. Uh, we're seeing that breakdown. I've gone to my local grocery store uh, a number of times, um, and there are times there are no meat, no chicken, no milk, right? And the food supply chain um, is, is, is breaking down. And um, so you would think that uh, they would say, okay, so if we're going to do some kind of infusion of money in, into the um, economy, maybe what we can do is help shore up food supplies. In fact, what's happening is they're dumping milk, right? <laughs> By the millions of gallons. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's crazy. like during the Great Depression, right? You know, where they're slaughtering hogs by the, by the thousands. Uh, um, because they got an utterly unreasonable supply chain uh, in place. Um, so, so absolutely, that I can see, very little of this money has gone to the production side of things. It's all gone to the consumption side of things, right? Everybody gets their $1,200 stimulus check. Why? So they can buy things. Not so that they can make things or produce things, but so that they can buy things. And where are they buying those things from? Well, probably from China. And, uh, and by the way, one of the things we've experienced is that our medical supply chain has, is incredibly fragile, right? That uh, a, a huge portion of our medical supplies and drugs were coming from China. Um, I've read this morning um, 
um, that 75% of all drones are being built in China. <laughs> so, yes. So, Along know, with a 5G network that is going to dominate so many grids. Yeah. You know, uh, they, they really are leaders in that. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about debt. You and I have had some very robust conversations about the debt in this country, both personal debt, but what I'm really speaking of is national debt. We seem to have entered a phase in which we can solve, we think we can solve all problems by printing more money and, you know, the treasury uh, going out and buying, you know, bonds, selling our debt to China, that kind of thing. How long can we do this? And what does that do to the nature of our country and the nature of being a citizen in our country? If we think that we can solve all these problems, by just going and asking the government to print more money. Now, I asked that question recognizing that we were truly in a crisis, as still are in many ways, and it was necessary for the government to do this initially. But I'm, what I'm afraid of, what I'm addressing here, is that is it changing our mindset in this country? So, yeah. well, that, that's the other part of the consumerist thing, right, is we get our goods from China, but then we also purchase those goods with debt that's being funded by China. Uh, Crazy. Yeah, it, it's, uh, and, and China's a bad actor. Uh, and Looks I know like I'm not it. supposed to say that, but to me, that is evidence of um, the kind of corruption of the elites was that early on in this process, they could not bring them themselves to say the obvious, and that is that China was a bad actor in this whole business. Uh, why? Because they wanted to keep the economy going and, um, because they didn't want to appear to be racists. Um, and so they neglected to say something that was perfectly obvious and that China was a bad actor in this whole business. Um, and they continue to be. Um, what does debt do to us? So, believes, honestly, I am trying to make sense of this. I'm not an economist. Um, uh, I, when, when they announced the, the $2 trillion, uh, $2.5 trillion CARES Act, uh, my immediate reaction is, well, where's the money coming from? <laughs> <laughs> and you know that the kind of uh, you know, thing, well, they'll just print more money. Um, in a certain sense, that's kind of true. Um, as, as nearly as I can figure it out, um, this falls under the rubric of what is known as modern monetary theory. So it's kind of a rather novel thing. And again, I'm not an economist, so uh, I, I, I don't want to pretend to expertise here uh, because in, in part, it's befuddling. Like I, I can understand running a business, right? Simple production of something, right? I can understand running a farm. I need to grow things and sell my crops. Uh, you know, I need to build tables and sell them at a market or something like that. I, I have a brother um, uh, who, who's a woodworker and uh, uh, he sells, um, among the things he sells are puzzle boards. Right, uh, that people can make puzzles on. And they're selling like hotcakes right now. And uh, uh, good for him, but I understand that model, right? That um, you have to purchase the goods, you have to purchase the wood and the stain and whatever else it is that he's uh, buying. And then you have to put your labor into it and then you sell it and you try to make a profit on it and so forth. And it all makes sense to me. None of this makes any sense to me. Uh, as nearly as I can figure it out, what's happening is that the Treasury Department is issuing bonds and the Fed is buying those bonds. And then the, um, any uh, investment income the Fed gets off the purchase of the bonds, it has to put back into Treasury again. So this whole thing is being held together by double entry bookkeeping. 
Um, the Fed now has on its balance sheet $6 trillion in assets. Uh, it's buying some mortgage-based assets, it's buying other bond-based assets and so forth, uh, it's buying assets from corporations. Um, the Fed has $6 trillion. I don't know what that means, $6 trillion, right? It's an abstract number. Um, um, so that part of, of, of uh, modern monetary theory, as I understand it, is um, that uh, deficits are never problems because um, if the government runs up a deficit, right? If the government is, is borrowing money, that money that is borrowing is going somewhere else, right? So uh, it all evens up, right? Um, and so it's all about keystrokes. You know, you just have these keystrokes. Money. I'm like, yeah, but even if that's true, and I doubt it is, uh, but even if that's true, um, it's leaking off, right? I mean, where's China in this theory, for example? Where are other actors? It's not as if the Fed is the only one buying these bonds. Um, so I don't know. Uh, we, we, have, uh, um, uh, we have to pay interest on that debt. Like this we know. The U.S. right now has $25 trillion in debt. We have to pay interest on that debt. And one of the ways we're managing to pay interest on that debt is by keeping interest rates really low. Um, right, those interest rates start going up a little bit, and uh, the next thing you know, the U.S. government is paying a trillion dollars a year. Right now, it's about half a trillion dollars a year they're paying on debt servicing. Just servicing the debt. We cannot inflate our way out of the national debt. And, and what worries me, Jeff, and what really gets my blood boiling, you said how we have failed our, our younger generation coming up. Even those of us to say, oh, we're against higher taxes. You have this kind of national debt that we can't inflate our way out of. These are taxes on the next generation. Yep. And if that doesn't make people stop and think about what we are doing right now, I don't know what will. It's, it's the height of hypocrisy to say we want lower taxes and then to have these deficits and these, the national debt at such a level that our poor kids are gonna have to pay it off. Well, and, and, and as I understand uh, this theory, modern monetary theory, uh, you, you, uh, um, you, you do need to have ever higher rates of taxation, but you can have them because you're pumping more money into the economy. So it's not actually affecting people's spending power. It just looks to me like a giant ledger game, right? <laughs> They're playing around with spreadsheets. Um, uh, <sighs> but right, it, it, it is, uh, um, there are op actual obligations that you have. You have to pay the interest on it. Yes. You have to pay Social Security. You have to pay Medicare. You have to pay Medicaid. Um, the government has to be able to cash checks that it sends to uh, defense contractors and so forth. That money has to come from somewhere uh, and it has to come from someone. And uh, you can delay, right? You can keep hitting the snooze alarm uh, on when you're going to pay this back, but at, at some point it has to be paid back. I don't see how you can uh, get around that. And so I, I, I'm with you. Um, so there's a cynical part of me um, that uh, sort of thinks that some of the policies being advocated for in, in um, the current crisis, and, and I don't want to say that we shouldn't have policies if there aren't serious public health issues, there clearly are. Uh, but some of the policies, which have seemed to me incoherent um, and counterproductive, 
um, don't seem quite so incoherent if you look at them uh, from the point of view of, of who's bearing the costs of them. So I'll give you an example. In California, they had uh, these public trails and they allowed hiking on these trails, but they didn't allow mountain bikes on these trails. The mountain bikers were typically young people. The hikers were typically middle-aged or older people. Now, how is mountain biking uh, more likely to spread the virus than hiking or walking together? It's not, except that mountain bikers are young people and walkers are old people, right? So, I, I think there is a, a, an aspect to this, a generational aspect to this whole thing. I think there's a class aspect that doesn't get talked about enough. And I think there's a generational aspect that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, th there is a kind of uh, other act of the baby boomers um, at, at, at work here. Now, one of the things that um, um, social science data uh, uh, tells us about baby boomers um, is uh, there are high levels of secularism among them. And so what are the, the, the sort of um, two things that you typically see emerge in secular societies? Um, I mean, it's one of the things Tocqueville talks about actually. One is an obsession with material well-being. And two uh, is an utter inability uh, to deal with the problem of death and suffering. And um, so avoiding death and suffering becomes the summum bonum. That becomes the most important thing. Um, now, Lash talks about this with regard to the difference between populists and elites, is that populists, because, you know, they're facing death all the time, right? It's part of, uh, of, of, of the world. They recognize it as a kind of normal human limit. Um, they don't welcome it. They don't seek it. Um, uh, but they, they, they understand the way it operates as a limit upon human goods and human aspirations. Um, you know, the transhumanist movement in America, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, through algorithms and computer generation, right, we can kind of bypass the problem of death altogether. It would just download our consciousness, right? There's a professor at Princeton who's kind of famous for for, for talking about this, we'll just download our consciousness. Um, I think there, there is a um, general problem that we have uh, about trying to make sense of death. Um, and, and so you have um, groups of people who think it, have to be, it has to be avoided at all costs. Um, and other people who say, well, look, I know it's going to happen to me someday. Um, I'm not looking to rush it. Right? Uh, you know, I'd rather it happened later rather than sooner. Um, but it is, uh, the avoidance of death is one human good um, that has to be considered aside um, other human goods uh, that we enjoy. It is not the only human good. Uh, but that's Thomas Hobbes, right? The avoidance of an untimely death is, is the summum bonum. That's the only um, that operates socially. So I, I think there is uh, this kind of, um, uh, yeah, that there's this sort of, I, I think it's something sort of typical of, I, it's crude, right, for me to say this, but uh, of, in, in a largely secular society, death is always going to be a serious problem. 
quickly, um, your, your question was, what does debt do to us? Um, you may recall that the, the movement from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution was in part generated by, by debt issues. Right? They're trying to figure out what debt. Very much and so. Some of the people who resisted uh, the Constitution said, uh, this Hamiltonian plan, this is ledger domain, this is game playing. I mean, the way you deal with problem of debt is you live within your means, um, you work hard, and you have the Franklin virtues, right? You sort of possess the Franklin virtues, thrift, scrupulousness, frugality, right? these kinds of things. Um, you do not try to discharge your debt through um, these kind of financial machinations. That's clearly what we're trying to do. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, uh, the inflationary consequences. I mean, if, if the government ends up monetizing its debt, uh, which it seems to me likely they're going to do, um, and this does seem to be the bugaboo from everything I've read in, mon in modern monetary theory is hyperinflation. Um, and if you really want to stick it, uh, to the next generation have hyperinflation in your economy. Well, remember when we were young men and learning about all these things, I remember back in the late 80s and early 90s, you didn't want government, for example, uh, printing a lot of money and having big uh, programs because of what was called at that time crowding out. And if mm -hmm. you crowded out, it would cause inflation because the government would be one of the competitors for the money in the market. Well, I guess we have solved that problem, but you know, um, the suspicion that I have underneath it all is that we really haven't solved the problem. We've talked ourselves into thinking we have solved the problem. I do think down the road we're going to have inflationary pressures and our kids are going to pay the brunt of that. Uh, Jeff, we've got viewers queued up, ask questions. Okay. Uh, some of them, friends of the Hallenstein Center and friends of yours and mine. Okay. Uh, so let's, let's get to those. Jason Duncan, a good history oh, Jason professor Duncan. at Aquinas. Yeah. yeah. Hi, Jason. Uh, he's very much enjoying our session today, and he says, our polarized politics today is defined more and more by right versus left, by two ideological parties with millions disaffected from both. What do you think that means for the future of our country? And Jason adds, feel free to bring the dog back in on this one. He won't mind. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Yeah. Great question. Uh, so Jason, uh, uh, Jason grew up in upstate New York, and uh, I guess what they call burned over country uh, up there, and it's sort of an interesting case study, and uh, that's the area that Christopher Lash was from, uh, actually. So I think, you know, Lash, he taught at the University of Rochester, I think he was sort of uh, observing the world around him. One of the things Lash argued in um, uh, the true and only heaven is um, that both parties are utterly committed to this idea of progress. Um, one of the things debt does to us is it makes us think that we can live beyond our means. Right? Um, and that living beyond our means is actually the kind of key to happiness. And um, that's different than a kind of chastened view of the world, which is, um, that you have to live within your means. Um, you have to try to figure out, as Wendell Berry says, how to get a maximum amount of satisfaction from a minimum amount of consumption. And um, Lash argued that both parties uh, have become parties of progress. Um, what their disagreements are about means. And that in fact, theater of politics is meant to distract us from this kind of underlying agreement about 
limitless growth and endless progress. Uh, um, and, and, and so it's, it's kabuki theater, right? I mean, it's, uh, they scream at each other, they yell at each other, uh, but it's really um, a, a dispute about means. And I would add, actually, it's a dispute about patronage, um, that modern politics really is a kind of spoils system. And, and so electoral politics is uh, really about who's going to control the levers of patronage um, in a political system. Um, what happens uh, is uh, exactly what, what Jason suggests, um, and that is you're going to have uh, a lot of uh, discontent that finds no voice. Right? And th these are these populist movements, right? That they, they really don't find a home in either party. Ross Perot, uh, perhaps. Uh, 92 um, is an example of this. William Jennings Bryan was certainly an example of this. Jason knows this, Jason's a historian, he knows all this better than I do. Um, and uh, uh, Susan McWilliams uh, had a, a, a really cool essay back in 2016 uh, comparing Trump's voters to Hunter S. Thompson's book on Hell's Angels. You know, um, and I, it was a really smart essay. Susan McWilliams, I recommend to viewers that they watch it. Um, and that is these people who, um, that, that, that the system has kind of said, we don't want you. Now, J.D. Vance, you know, the hillbilly elegy is kind of the articulation of this, right? That both parties have sort of said to these people, we don't want you. Um, and then Donald Trump comes along, right? Uh, right? Marco Rubio didn't want them. Jeb Bush didn't want them. Uh, uh, you know, Rick Perry didn't want them. You're right, Nate, 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 but Donald Trump said, "No, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a voice for you people." Uh, and uh, you know, it's how you end up with with Donald Trump, right? Um, because that resentment that's building up has nowhere to go, um, and it has no positive program. I mean, the fact that Trump has no positive program is kind of the point. Um, in a certain sense. Uh, McWilliams says it's sort of like the Hell's Angels going around with their middle fingers raised. Um, you, you know, it's, it's not as if they're doing something affirming or positive. They're just saying not that because you people have dispossessed us. Um, and, and so uh, we're, we're a pox um, on, on, on the whole enterprise. Um, what that movement needs, what that resentment needs, um, uh, is a political program that is uh, a positive, affirmative program. And here's, and maybe this is just a prejudice on my part, it's not going to come from the left. If it's going to come anywhere, it's going to come from the right. Uh, Why do you not, say that? Um, because um, it is a fundamentally conservative disposition to believe in limits, right? That, 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 uh, to be skeptical of progress, uh, to be skeptical of elites, um, and to be skeptical of, um, I'm gonna go back to Lash again. Uh, one of the things Lash talked about uh, was uh, what America needs are people who are independent, not interdependent. And by that he meant people who are doing things, they're building things, they're making things, they're creating things, and they share this kind of small scale life together. It's all about localism, right? They share these local lives together, and that's where the solidarity happens. Um, 
and they engage in disagreement, right? They, 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 they fight, they struggle, it's agonistic. Um, and that's democracy, right? It's messy, uh, it's agonistic. Uh, um, uh, but at the end of the day, people kind of say, yeah, you know what, I mean, that's fine because um, I can still maintain my livelihood uh, because things are interdependent where uh, we all have to kind of run according to the same program and the same plan. Um, and that's the egalitarian impulse, right? We're all going to have to be subject to the same plan uh, in a certain sense. If it comes anywhere, it's going to come from the right, uh, which recognizes limits. Uh, there, at least there's a history there. There's a tradition there on the right. It's not currently there. Uh, it is, in but in very small form. Um, which uh, 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 talks about proprietorship, um, talks about um, independence, talks about limits, um, is largely religious, right? It's more religious. Um, and, and I think that, uh, Lash talks about this, the religious sensibility is essential to this. Um, and, because and has, if you're religious, you know you're not God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Tokfa has a lot to say about this also. Uh, and and uh, um, um, is neighborly in, in the sense that, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened um, is, is this kind of clustering of people right. into like-minded communities. Um, and the old idea of neighborliness is you're engaged in common projects and a common life together. Um, politics is just not the biggest deal in your life. Right, right. When people are vilifying each other because of who they voted for. Yeah, it's gotten out of hand. It really yeah. has. Well, here's a little bit of a change in register. Uh, one of your neighbors there in, in Holland, Greg Dykhouse. We okay. had him on as a guest several weeks back. Hi, Greg. He asks this, as a college professor, what would you like to see in the efforts of high school students and teachers as they prepare for post-secondary experience? Thanks, Greg. Great. Yeah, great question. Um, first of all, and I'm going to say something um, <laughs> that I, I, I hope the administrators of my college are not listening right now. Um, we have devalued work. Right? Um, this is part of the uh, problem with uh, meritocracy as we understand it. Um, we believe that um, the knowledge classes are the valuable classes. Right? They're the ones who contribute to things. They're the ones who run things. Um, and um, so we devalue work. Uh, we devalue um, um, being a plumber or being an electrician or being a mechanic, um, all of which are good, honorable professions. And when I say that, I can't help but sound condescending, and I don't mean to. I honestly believe that, right? I mean, I, I say this to my students all the time. My, my, my trash collector does more for me on a weekly basis than the president does. Uh, um, uh, and, and part of it is, um, you know, what would happen, for example, if instead of a, a shutdown order, you know, the governors said, okay, we're not gonna shut down, but everybody's going to have to go grab a shovel and start working in the fields. Who would be protesting right now? Who would be in Lansing, right, protesting this? Um, well, I have a pretty good idea who it would be. 
you know, shovel. I, I'm sore. I'm tired. I, my, I've got blisters on my hands. I'm like, yeah. Um, I, I think that we send, I, I've got a friend who teaches kindergarten and um, she's being told that she has to make her students college ready. I think this is absurd. Um, and I, I, I think uh, we overvalue uh, mental labor and we undervalue physical labor. Um, and that's a serious problem. So we should not be telling high school kids, you got to get ready for college. You got to right. college is the golden ticket. Yep. Right. Yeah. Well, college is the golden ticket. Um, I think it's a huge mistake. Um, I think it's a Faustian bargain that we've made. Um, and I think we're paying the price for it. And we're going to keep paying the price for it as colleges. However, um, that does not mean we should not have colleges. Uh, um, and if you want to prepare a kid for college, have them read, have them write. Uh, those, are the right. two, those are the two skills that are most important and are the shortest in supply. Um, and, and get them off their computers, take away their computers, don't give them iPads, give them books, and give them a pen and paper. Here, here. Jeff, we've got now a uh, question that just came in from our good friend George Nash. Oh, wow. Great historian yeah. there in Massachusetts. And he asks, I think a question that was provoked by about the midpoint of our conversation. He's asked, can conservatives believe in limits yet be committed also to improvement? Is there an American tradition of conservative reform? Mm -hmm. well, Thank you, George. <laughs> uh, for, for, for listeners who don't know, I mean, George Nash is the great historian of American conservatism. So I'm, uh, I, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to tell, uh, uh, to, to, we should have, you should have George Nash on here answering that question rather than me. George, we're going to have uh, you yeah, on there, so you can answer that question someday. Yeah, <laughs> there is, there is. Uh, the, this sort of term that we use uh, for that is meliorism. Um, and there is a, a conservative uh, meliorist uh, tradition. Um, Edmund def Burke. Def define what meliorism is. Oh, to ameliorate something simply means to make it better, right? To improve it. It, it implies um, more so of an incremental. It's an incremental yeah. thing. Uh, and, and we all seek to do that, right? I mean, we seek to better ourselves. We seek to improve ourselves. Uh, um, uh, you know, my mom always told me, uh, whenever you go somewhere, you, you leave the place better than when you found it. Um, and, and I think that is a conservative disposition. Edmund Burke, uh, you know, famously said, um, oh, geez, uh, uh, a people who have, uh, how's it go again, Gleaves? A people who have uh, uh, no capacity for their improvement, have no ability for their preservation, or something like that, right? I mean. Well, if George is listening, George, would you please. Uh Send that into us. The exact quotation. I know yeah, you know from Edmund Burke. Yeah, it's, it's right. Uh, you you have to have um, the means for your improvement if you're going to have the mechanisms for your preservation, um, and that um, any kind of healthy society um, is a proper balancing of to use old Aristotelian terms between static and dynamic elements. Um, uh, you know. I, an obvious example is 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 um, race, right? I mean, there are a lot of conservatives who were simply wrong about race. That's right. 
uh, back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and, and even 60s, National Review 60s, was holding yeah. out, you know, not, yeah. you know, supporting the Voting Rights Act, not supporting the Civil Rights Act. It's one of the black marks on the conservative movement. Yeah, yeah, it's scandalous, right? Scandalous. And, uh, and the conservatives are still paying for it today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is not only an improvement in the lives of uh, black people, it's an improvement in the life of America. That's right. It made the country better, um, right? Uh, if you think about um, our, our classes, um, you know, Hope I'm not sure what year Hope College went co-educational, um, right? But there was a time where young women couldn't attend college. Um, also uh, scandalous. It's scandalous, right? I mean, I, I sit in these college classes. I have these these young women. My Tocqueville form, you know, two thirds of them are young women. Uh, they're bright, they're engaged, they're energetic. Like, what a loss it would be uh, if if they had to keep that light hidden under a bushel. Um, and Jeff, oh, I so agree. Sixty six percent of the people in our Cook Leadership Academy are women. Yeah, yeah. The, the world is children or women, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but thank goodness the world has changed, and there is a consensus across both parties now, both progressives and conservatives, that it has to be this way. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, I, I think it is a um, you you need to have a kind of consistent working out of your principles. Um, you know, principles are no good if you abandon them the second a crisis arises. Uh, then they're not really principles, they're just sort of guidelines, you know. Um, um, and I, I, think, I think King was exactly right, uh, that some of the principles uh, in, in the American founding are what we might roughly call conservative principles. Um, and we weren't living up to them, right? Uh, That's right. And uh, right, there's a, a, a reminder to people, a call to people to live up to their principles. Uh, and, and to work them out fully. So yeah, I think I think absolutely th th uh, there needs to be uh, conservative reform. Um, uh, if, if if conservatism is just this kind of static thing, uh, just the maintenance of the status quo, then who cares, right? I mean, that, it doesn't interest me if that's what it is. No, me neither. It isn't even interesting as a field of academic study if that's all that there is. Right. Yeah. Well. Jeff, I think we're going to wrap up now. Uh, this has been a very stimulating conversation. And I, I want to thank you, um, you know, and Hope College for sharing uh, your time and sharing your passion for political philosophy and talking us through some of your most recent observations during the novel coronavirus pandemic. Thanks also to our viewers, whom I invite to Zoom in or join us on Facebook at the same time Thursday, May 21st, when my guest will be Cook Leadership Academy fellow Lucretia Dunlap. Lou and I will discuss failure, resilience, and mental health in leadership. So till Thursday at 1 p.m., stay tuned and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Howenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu/hc. 
You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney. Thank you.